What is the U.S. Space Force and who is going to be a part of it? This is one of many questions Americans have as the new service stands up. I am your host, Bill Wolf, the president and founder of the Space Force Association. On this edition of A Space Pro, Dr. Mike Ludes Martindale and I interview U.S. Air Force Academy cadets Williams and Van Hegewald, who started the Institute for Applied Space Policy and Strategy. A Space Pro podcast covers topics from military, industry, civil, and education sectors. To gain a better understanding of what this U.S. Space Force is all about and why it is a critical component to our national security, please go to ussfa.org and sign up for updates on all topics related to our newest military service. Now listen in as we gain the educational perspective of a future Space Force and a future Air Force member. Thank you for hosting us. I am Eric Van Higgewald. I'm Cohen Williams. And we're here representing the Institute for Applied Space Policy and Strategy, IASPS, or ASPIS. We're also trying out the name I-5 uh, for simplicity's sake. We're a USAFA cadet club. We're about 30 members, and we do this all in our own time and of our own volition. Uh, one of the cool things about the club is that we have a very diverse set of majors. We range from a lot of the engineering majors to a lot of the humanity majors, some law, and that, that diversity really brings a plethora of ideas to the table. One of the things that we're working on right now is some coordination with 379th Space Range Squadron, in which they're going to be coming to JAXA in May. We have some cadets that are going to go out and participate with them, as well as just learn about what they do. The next comment is going to be talking a little bit about our AR VR visualization. Exactly. So one of the big problems that we've been uh, seeing and that the uh, club's been picking up on as well is that especially with as technically minded of an institution as we are, um, that's hard to visualize a lot of these complex technical issues. For example, space. Uh, visualizing astrodynamics has been extremely tough uh, for a lot of our classmates. And so what our club is specifically doing is working with a, uh, several different companies to bring uh, augmented reality and visual reality technologies to USAFA, um, not only to teach astro um, dynamics and you know engineering, but uh, to talk about a wide variety of other technical issues as well as strategic simulations. One of the other cool things that's uh, also a slightly different change of note from the ARVR is that uh, we are participating in an astropolitics forum in which we have uh, approximately four four degrees, so that's uh, freshmen from I-5 that are going to be participating with senior with firsties, seniors from the political science department as well as uh, senior officers in this forum to be talking about. They're, they're answering these difficult questions with respect to policy, strategy, and it's really cool that we have four degrees freshmen that are part of our institution and in which we provided them the skills and the enthusiasm to go through and learn about these topics that are going to be on the same panel with senior officers and uh, seniors from the Air Force Academy. Exactly. So now to get into a bit more of the meat and potatoes of what our club has been working on, uh, we've been focusing primarily on uh, the, the strategic impacts of um, what's going to be going on within our careers, so the next 10, 20 years. So we have a few different teams working on specific issues, like his military uh, relationship with space resources, uh, how are we going to defend commercial interests and um, protect and ensure that they can help us out as well. Uh, we are looking at the Space Force, um, partially what is that going to look like in 10 to 20 years, as well as uh, what can that look like now at USAFA, working with the um, folks determining that now. Space deterrence, uh, largely de undefined, and so coming up with some innovative, not only ideas for solutions, but also even just definitions at the core level. Uh, military on the moon, something that is actually extremely likely to happen within our lifetimes and even careers. And so being able to lay that foundation now, while uh, folks uh, at the Pentagon or the White House do not have the time in the day to think about the issues that are 10 to uh, 20 years out. So be able to lay down these foundations as well for military on the moon. Uh, talking about the relationship between cyber and space. So we got a team uh, working on uh, coming up with some innovation solutions not only for cybersecurity, um, but also for how those two domains can coexist and interact together. Uh, and finally, we have a team working on space in the Middle East. So that means classifying the space efforts there, um, you know, possibly coming up with some solutions for grand strategy, and uh, really just educating um, not only folks at USAF, but hopefully across um, the globe as to what is going on there. 
Uh, also, we also have a very strong networking branch here at i5. And uh, that that's actually a big component of what we do. And it's not networking in the traditional way of like conference level trade the business card. So that that's just the first step um, where all we do is tell you about what we're doing and we get you to at least share some interest or excitement. And at that point, you're in. And uh, so what we're able to do is classify, um, you know, kind of what your interests are, what your experiences are, get your contact information. And what we do is we coordinate and uh, introduce you um, sorry, introduce the cadets to you so that they're able to ask questions, um, talk about different concepts, and directly share their ideas with you, um, bringing those cadet level innovation, innovative ideas directly to your table. Um, and so we're going to kind of backtrack a bit here, talk a bit about how we started. I actually started with uh, Dr. Martindale, who's going to be with us today. Um, he was our both Eric and I's strategic studies teacher, sophomore year of USAFA. Uh, he taught us a few key lessons. Uh, one, that strategic growth and mindedness is extremely critical uh, for how we are to develop as officers and potential decision makers. Um, two, uh, he really brought up a lot of the important issues that not a lot of other instructors are bringing up in part because he is a uh, space-minded professional, um, he's able to talk about concepts that we had no experience with before, specifically like space. Um, and he also talked to us about the importance of when exciting people about space education and bringing them into this uh, space professional's fold, uh, talk about the threat first rather than the methods. I, I could bore anyone to death talking about astrodynamics and the different concepts of strategy relating to space for hours. But that does not do anything for this younger generation that needs to be inspired, that needs to see the importance of what they're doing. And so bring in that threat first. Um, so after all this, uh, General Raymond happened to come to USAFA and uh, give, give a presentation um, to lots of the cadets as to you know, what are some of the unclassified threats facing you know, the U.S. as well as what's the state of space. And so at the end of it, um, he made mention that any good ideas that the cadets had, he would be happy to entertain them and just email him directly. Uh, I talked to a lot of my friends, and some people were considering it, but none of them followed through. Uh, Eric and I um, felt that we had a great idea and decided to follow through. And so after about a week of cultivating a very finely crafted email, focusing extremely hard on syntax and uh, composition, uh, we sent it. Um, and got an email back later that night, CC'd uh, with General Shaw, saying, hey, we love what you're doing. Let us know what we need and what we can do to help you, um, and let's get this moving. And just, just kind of funny now in that email, I think we probably went through about four or five different iterations on it to really get to the final draft to make sure it was perfect. Yep. And uh, kind, of, kind of fueled by the enthusiasm that we had from General Raymond and General Shaw and then realized – this is, yes, truly a good idea, and there's a ton of support at the top level. Uh, Cohen and I decided that we, in part, needed to learn the policy components of what's necessary for policy, as well as what policy research entails. And there was a, a fortunate opportunity with a visiting professor in the policy department, uh, Dr. Jeff Black, in which we were able to set up a independent study research with him, in which Cohen went through and analyzed a lot of the uh, space policy components of China and I looked at Russia and from this we were able to uh, develop more contacts with the policy department and that led us to an opportunity for a summer internship with the Aerospace Corporation. So bear in mind Con and I are both engineering majors and our internship with the Aerospace Corporation was actually for policy. So we kind of branched out of uh, the normal engineering track for uh, summer research but one of the really unique things with Aerospace Corp is that it gave us the proximity when we went to D.C. to the Pentagon and the White House. And we were able to meet with a lot of uh, generals, SESs, and uh, some policymakers up on the Hill to, in part, uh, determine the critical nature of the club and where our club can fit in, where we can fill in some of those gaps. And as we... We ended up coming back to the Air Force Academy saying, okay, we have a purpose, we know how we're going to help, and we presented the ideas to the department heads, and everything really just seemed like it fell into place. So that being said, uh, 
and Camden's other department heads, it's, uh, I think it's necessary to emphasize one of the prior points uh, when we first emailed General Raymond. I think Cohen's good at telling the story. Absolutely. So uh, one of the, 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 back, the darker backside of that uh, General Raymond story is that, you know, as I said, we focused a lot on the email itself and not on who we were going to tell about sending said email. Uh, keep in mind, this is cadets that hold no technical rank emailing a four-star directly. Um, and so, <clears throat> CC'd you know, with General Shaw. Um, later that day, um, there must have been some secret emails going on behind because the next day, astronautical engineering department head um, walked into a rocket propulsion class, uh, a little bit white-faced, and asked uh, the one fateful question, what have y'all done? And... Um, we we have since uh, converted many of our many of the initial folks that were doubtful as to the origins of our creation, um, but yeah, needless to say, we did learn our lesson. Uh, we do not email four stars now without direct uh, approval, um, and uh, things are rolling really well now. At a minimum, it was seeing uh, department heads so they don't get the uh, shocking uh, email with no situational awareness uh, from a two star and a four star. Uh, when we went through and presented to the rest of the department heads as we were coordinating with them, specifically we were looking at the political science department, the astro department, and the military and strategic studies department. And it was a, the response was, we need something like this. This needed to happen at least five, ten years ago. And so uh, we were able to get garner some of their support, uh, develop a little bit more of an infrastructure for our research teams. Uh, for the upperclassmen, we were able to offer uh, independent study credit for a lot of the research that they're doing and one of the things too that we're, we're struggling with is that it's it is a grassroots organization I mean Cohen and I literally did start it up from the ground and uh, we're doing it at the Air Force Academy which has an extremely rigid structure and everyone's vying for cadet time uh, our people and our uh, members that are enthusiastic and able to provide all the energy they are the, really the ones that are keeping the program alive and garnering some of the extra support and uh, Con and I both have a tremendous amount of faith and hope for uh, what the future entails not only for the club but also uh, for the Space Force and the Air Force working together. I'm just curious what your thoughts are on uh, entering into a kind of a, a vast unknown domain. In Absolutely. I mean, honestly, from my perspective, I mean, this might just be from me being a little bit, you know, on the younger side of the military. Um, but I, I've been extremely interested in the energy that uh, not only the development of the Space Force has had, um, but the way that folks like General Raymond and uh, General Burt have been attacking the issue. Um, I've been really focusing on space, not only as a warfighting domain, uh, but on extending that out to protecting commercial entities um, and really Holding it into the joint uh, warfare spectrum. And so, at least for me, I'm a little bit less worried necessarily about what I'm going to be called or what uniform I'm going to wear. I mean, clearly the cooler the better, um, but uh, I'm just excited to be a part of a new untested system where I can actually make a direct impact. Uh, according to what we've learned, uh, currently there's two people in the Space Force uh, officially, and then yeah. when we graduate, uh, we'll be the 60 people that will be the addition to that 60 and to the current two, so making 62. Uh, so I'm really hoping that General Raymond is my direct supervisor, um, able to talk to me about DTS issues and the like. But uh, overall, I'm just excited to be a part of relatively an unknown system. I think that's what I've worked really hard to be good at, is working in the unknown rather than a strict regiment. And yeah, frankly, one word is just excited. Yeah. Uh, if I were to speak to the... Like I'm, so I'm still going into the Air Force. Uh, and, and and tell me, uh, when you guys talk, I apologize, but when you guys talk, just briefly introduce yourselves again, so that folks know who you are, who's speaking, because otherwise they they might get confused. Thanks. Gotcha. Right, well, this this is uh, Eric Van Hagelwald. Uh Speaking about you know, kind of going into the Air Force while the Space Force is being created. I, I wish it was created uh, several years prior to. Uh, but one of the things that I am like picking up on from a lot of the interactions is that it seems like for all the other space officers is that these shackles are being kind of free mm -hmm. and that there's going to be this uh, change in culture that I think will be really beneficial because I'm still used to seeing a lot of the, uh, the, the standard Air Force culture and it really works for working in the aerodomain. Uh, but I'm not sure 
And once again, I'm still a cadet here, but I'm not sure necessarily it's applicability to, you know, moving to space. I think the, the thing that I'm worried about is uh, kind of the attitudes and the, uh, the pride that uh, the Air Force uh, will have in certain individuals and kind of seeing this change and the shift as well as this integration to know that, yes, space is really, really important and that that's what powers my plane to an extent. I think that there's a lot that's going to go on and uh, needless to say, I'm a little nervous to see what that will look like, but I'm very excited uh, at a minimum for all the space operators out there. Absolutely. Tell us what, what, uh, what uh, profession are you going into? I'm going to go through and uh, become a pilot. Um, yeah, despite totally. being, you know, 6'6". Six, six. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but uh, there's some pretty exciting news for you too. Uh, NJEPT is, uh, from what I understand, you're, you got accepted into that. Would you explain just a little bit about what NJEPT is and, and kind of what that means for you? Sure. So NJEPT, that's the, the acronym stands for the Euronato Joint Jet Pilot Training. And pretty much uh, you go down to Shepard Air Force Base in Wichita, Kansas, and uh, you it, it's it, pilot training uh, similar to a lot of the other ones, but one of the unique components is that you get taught by uh, other nations instructors. So you can have an Italian instructor, Polish instructor, in addition to a lot of the other US instructors. And you start off in the T6. But one thing that's unique to Shepard in addition to the international component is that you automatically track to the T38, which is required for a lot of these uh, operational platforms from the bombers to the fighters. So, theoretically more leap, but um, I just think it's different. You know what? Uh, I, I'm biased. Uh, I came up through the Air Force and, and retired from the Air Force and kind of experienced the different cultures between the air domain, the space domain, and, and those are the two domains we're going to talk about tonight. The, uh, it's always been interesting to hear the pilots talk about the space domain as a supported kind of uh, you know, a utility. And really, what I'm curious about as we move forward, in your opinion, can the space domain be a supported domain from the air domain? And the, way, the reason I bring that up is I think there's opportunities for the air domain to strike critical targets that have impact on the space superiority mission. But, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm out of the Air Force now, but I'd, I'd be curious what your thoughts are as you get into the Air Force and, and what you're thinking about, because ultimately what this is dependent on is the relationship between the air domain and the space domain, and you two both represent both those domains now. So I'd be curious what your thoughts are on that, and if you've discussed it, and what you think. Absolutely. So we actually recently had a four degree, which is our equivalent of a freshman. Uh, sorry, this is Cohen, by the way. Uh, yeah, write a paper. You. Sorry? Yep, good. Okay. Um, write a paper on extending the nuclear umbrella of strategy to the space domain. So specifically, one of his case examples he brings up is if Russia or China were to hack one of our space-based infrared satellites, uh, that, that blinds us to potential nuclear uh, attack. And so how should we react to that? Should that be treated as the same thing as setting up a launch pad um, or strategically posturing yourself to be able to uh, launch or defend against a nuclear attack? And so one of our you know, great freshmen that's really doing a lot of great work, but it really does bring in the question is not only can space support other domains, but how are other domains going to have to support space exactly as you talked about? And the classic example of the F-16 uh, ASAT test that the uh, U.S. did a long time ago, um, well before many of the other countries were able to even do land-based ASAT. Uh, it, it's really going to be interesting to see how space is normalized uh, within that standard warfighting domain that we like to think of, and even if it is able to be normalized. Uh, if the debris problem is so extreme that space itself is a deterrent to any attack on it, um, and even then, uh, cyber is still going to be a huge part. Every single service owns the cyber component. And so every single service is going to be defending space assets, uh, especially within the Space Force um, as they're bringing in cyber, cyber operators. But I think these are a lot of big questions that are probably outside of our pay grade right now. Um, but these are things that we're definitely thinking about, especially within our club, is how can we 
how can we decide um, what space is going to look like going into the future? I think, uh, to Eric Finnegold, uh, one other thing that's unique with respect to that, that shift in mindset is that it requires a lot of creativity. And we've, at least of all the stuff that I've seen, and we're entering this new, uh, I'd say, era where that shift is from that support role. But I think a lot of people don't know what it's going to look like if it's going to be the air domain supporting space. You know, if you know, Cohen did mention the cyber component, he did mention the ASAT test. I believe that was an F-15, by the way. Uh, Probably. But nonetheless, it was. it's still important to consider uh, what that air component will be able to provide, at least capability-wise. I think there's a whole lot of unknown in that, and I, I hope it gets uh, defined in the near future. Yeah, no, yeah, no doubt. The, uh, and, and by the way, just to refresh everyone who's listening, this is the Space Force Association podcast talking to the IASPS cadets at the Air Force Academy who are about to graduate this year. And I want to also introduce Dr. Mike Lewis Martindale, who is the Space Education Committee lead for the Space Force Association. Uh, Dr. Martindale, if you'd like to say just a few words about kind of how this was evolved and how you, you kind of watched this happen, and then being a space operator yourself, what your views are for this future Space Force. Okay, yeah, sure. So uh, uh, now that I've solved my cyber issues with getting into the uh, meeting here today, <laughs> the uh, yeah, so. Uh, um, I had the good fortune while on faculty at the uh, at the academy to teach folks like Cohen and Eric. Um, uh, we've got some exceptional uh, students and future officers up there. And uh, as a uh, a space professional teaching up there, I was uh, uh, very encouraged to see these two take a great deal of initiative and sacrifice a great deal of their personal time in order to create this thing that they had a passion for. Um, so. Um, with that in mind, knowing that uh, uh, young people like uh, Cohen and Eric are going into the respective space and Air Force, uh, it is uh, encouraging to me that we have this brand new thing, the Space Force, and there's so many opportunities to get this thing right. And uh, the way to do it is uh, getting uh, lots of people uh, thinking about the challenges and uh, developing solutions to those challenges in, in a very uh, uh, fast but flexible way. We're not going to get everything right first, the right, you know, exactly right the first time. Uh, but as long as we keep doing it and innovating and trying and don't wait until we have the right perfect solution before we try it, I, I think we're going to be in a good place. Well, I, I completely agree, and it's going to take some innovative thought. I mean, we got to think about this differently, as, as they were just mentioning. You know, how do you define, and how would you all? Uh, I just offered this up to the cadets there who are about to graduate. How would you define space superiority? What do you think about? I mean, you you've been studying air superiority for the last four years, and now there's this new domain, space, and we have to quantify space superiority. What are you all thinking about? Uh, with regard to that discussion? I think it comes down to a lot of different things. This is, yeah, sorry, this is coming by the way. Uh, and I think it comes down to a combination of a lot of different aspects. So just looking up at the bookshelf right here, I have Astropolitik and also uh, John Klein's Space Warfare. And I think those were two of the beginning books really just trying to quantify uh, space superiority or space warfare, space strategy in the first place. They pull a lot on the air domain, pull a lot on the maritime domain, Boeing Corbett, and one of the interesting things I've realized is that not one theory completely prescribes um, the entire solution. And so talking about Corbett, for example, talking about choke points in the naval sense, you can't always have a, a perfect choke point in space. They bring in, you know, talks about the Hohmann transfer uh, and how that could potentially be a choke point, but they forget to include that astrodynamics is a frankly, uh, fairly unknown, or not unknown, um, hard to visualize problem. Um, and so there's a lot of solutions to any different uh, given problem. 
and not one theory prescribes itself specifically. Air superiority, right? We like to think of no-fly zones. We like to, especially here at the academy, we like to think of having the F-22s uh, having full autonomy or the A-10s, you know, just cruise around and effectively do whatever they want. Um, but at least my personal opinion is that going into these next few decades, that that may not be the strongest option for us, especially as we try to cultivate uh, these cooperative agreements between different countries, even potential adversaries. If you want to think about the relationship that we have with Russia, with the ISS, that, that doesn't fall within the space, uh, I'm sorry, within the air or maritime domain level of superiority, as we tend to think. And I think it's going to come down a lot to cooperative uh, agreements not only with other nations, but specifically with commercial entities. There's a lot of commercial entities that really uh, are, are looking forward into space and are looking for the Space Force to help support them, help guarantee uh, that they will have the ability to make a profit. And so I think personally that the way that I'm going to try to quantify space superiority, um, at least right now in my young career, is the way that our American and allied space commerce is able to profit. If we can guarantee them those freedoms, then I think we're doing a pretty good job. A little more directly from that uh, air model. If, if we think about an a, a area of operation or an airline, and if we have full of space, uh, air superiority, we don't have threats to the ground forces and other forces there from the air. And I think for it to apply at a very, very broad scale, that might be applicable to space superiority, but kind of we were mentioning with uh, flight restriction in those zones, it'd still be like having U.S. satellite or U.S. aircraft there, but then also with other commercial entities and other nations flying around in this no-fly zone. Uh, I, I think Cohen uh, mentioned some good books, and uh, using that maritime model in my opinion, is perhaps more appropriate because of the nature of the global commons and because it's, you know, it's not as confined to the atmosphere or indoor water. So it's going to be some kind of mixing and uh, mashing of the, the two models and, or potentially something completely unique on its own. But I think freedom from threats is a good way to uh, very broadly define it. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree, Eric. And I'll, uh, I'll uh, ask Dr. Martindale, if he wouldn't mind uh, providing just his perspective and going forward. And then if he, Dr. Martindale, if you've got some questions to ask, uh, happy to have you ask those now. Okay, yeah, so, so for uh, space superiority, uh, the things that uh, we need to think about are geometry and time. So in the air domain, in a lot of, uh, uh, when you get down to the tactical employment level, um, you have defined airspace, and usually, most of the time, you are in the process of just maintaining your own airspace that you kind of already own. And then, when you need to capture airspace in the uh, in the risk area, you consolidate your forces so that you can go and do that for a specific period of time to provide that ability to do what you need to do over the area of risk and then get out. When you don't have to be over in the area risk, you're out and you're defended. And uh, uh, so that shapes the way we think about uh, air superiority. When you listen to the uh, current uh, General Goldfein, Chief of Staff of the Air Force, he uses football as an analogy many times. And football's an excellent analogy for air power because uh, when you see how we employ and we line up, we execute, we send our receivers out, we do the running game, do what we do, and then everything stops, you reel back, and then you set up for the next play. In space, we don't have that luxury. Uh, yeah, on the, in the sea domain, you have a little bit more of that longer-term temporal view, but even then, if you don't have something that's there uh, that you need to defend, you don't need the Navy to be there. Um, and the cost of getting that Navy to that geography or geometry when you need it uh, is still a doable and relatively inexpensive task when compared to providing forces 
at the right geometry and time for space. Because in space, you're going to have to put position the forces well in advance, and the ability to maneuver forces is very, very low. So the time scale for you to, to control, to provide that space superiority, the superiority within that domain, is uh, nearly constant. So that changes the thinking. And so as we look at the other domains as uh, starting points to think about space power theory and space power strategy, uh, I think that's one of the most important elements we need to think about is that if you're going to control the geometry or the geography, you really have to capture the temporal element because it is so different than the rest of the domains. Wow. So <laughs> you're talking about the temporal element and I go, all right, let's talk about the temporal element. Let's expose that a little bit. Let's dig in a little bit. So, I mean, for the listener, because really what we're trying to do is get the information out about what the United States Space Force is going to be. Uh, we got two new members about to go in. You and I have both been there, done that. Uh, and we've got our biases that we bring with us. So let's talk about the temporal element for a second. And, you know, let's, let's expound on that just a little bit so that the common listener listening to this goes, oh, I understand what you're saying. And I, I like the Navy analogy. I think it's a good way to describe uh, the space domain superiority necessary. And I'd even offer that maybe what we're talking about is space superiority in a time and place necessary for that capability meaning you don't always need space superiority all the time you need space superiority for a very specific time in support of a very specific engagement but we have to be able to quantify what that is i think uh, eric van hegel i think one thing that's interesting and where Conan and i saw this in dc uh, we were working with DARPA on their uh, yeah, my Hallmark. Hallmark program. And they were looking at uh, developing new tools for space operators. And uh, this uh, one provider, uh, Redspace, he set up certain uh, scenarios. And one of the things that like stood out immediately uh, from these uh, like theoretical campaigns was certain maneuvers, tactical maneuvers, would be on the span of about 60 days. And that's just merely because you're changing the orbits. And the way that he took his model was that he uh, took like certain tankers and fighters and uh, other uh, Air Force-esque functions and then put them as satellites. And so I, I think with respect to that time domain, it's, it, as uh, Dr. Marndale mentioned, the uh, it's on a much, much longer time scale, and it's far more costly. So I think uh, if you're able to go through and imagine what a campaign or a maneuver looks like over the course of you know a couple months or uh, around that time frame, I think that will help uh, determine a lot more of that uh, strategy down the thoughts. No, I mean absolutely. It's it's a different way of thinking. And it's a different way of fighting. Is what it's going to come down to. You don't have the uh, I'm just going to put it bluntly like a luxury of being able to see exactly what your enemy is doing right in front of your face or on a radar scanner. Uh, maneuvers in space, like, like Eric mentioned, are, are potentially much slower depending on the technology or depending on uh, the tax of the specific actor. And so the, the temporal domain is really going to become a focus for operators to have to be able to visualize and also understand. Um, being able to perceive things through different lenses, uh, have a lot of machine learning that's able to pick up on those trends over the long term um, that humans aren't going to be able to do. It's, it's going to be a weird way of thinking, I think, for a lot of operators, especially coming from some of these more traditional career fields or traditional uh, services going into the Space Force. So it, it's a big question that, like I said earlier, we may not have the direct uh, you know, pay grade to understand um, as of right now or be allowed to know, but I think that's something that's going to be a big challenge um, for a lot of people, and I'm certainly excited to be a part of that challenge. Oh, well, it's going to be a challenge, uh, uh, absolutely. And I, I think because of the 
current state of affairs, you, you all are going to be the first ones to kind of lay this strategy out and be able to ec implement and execute the strategy. So it's, it's awesome to be able to talk to you all as you're getting ready to graduate here. Dr. Martindale, do you have any additional uh, questions, uh, comments for the cadets as they kind of go forward? What, what's, you've seen a lot in your career, so I'm just curious about your perspective and, and what your opinions are as we, as we move forward. What would you charge them with, if you will, and what questions might you have? Well, why don't we uh, start with questions? And uh, uh, obviously, I joined a little bit after y'all started. Um, so if I ask something that's already been covered, just tell me to move on, please. Um, but uh, um, so uh, uh, specifically for Eric, you're going to NGEP, right? Sir. So why don't, why don't you tell us briefly what that is? So uh, we actually did cover a little bit of that earlier. Okay. All right. Um, I can, I can speak uh, a little bit more towards what's kind of going to happen before NGEP and uh, so I, oh. I have to, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, let me, let me just, let me just chime in real quick because yeah. uh, it's awesome and really what that means is you're probably going to end up flying fighters, I mean, right. let's be honest, and you're going to probably end up flying the F-22 or the F-35, uh, which is extremely uh, sophisticated and probably technologically advanced to the point where you know, you're reliant on a lot of uh, multi-domain capabilities to give you the situational awareness necessary to go execute the, the target in the future. Uh, so that's, I mean, that's a big deal. Yeah, no, I, uh, so you said one of the buzzwords that uh, I actually really appreciate as uh, the concept of multi-domain. I think yeah, that, my appreciation of that really grew after we talked uh, at Space Symposium, I believe it was last year. Two years, two years ago. Wow. <laughs> Holy, time's all relative now. Uh, but when we were talking about multi-domain, and I, I did a lot more research into it, and saw how the Army was doing their program. And I think one thing I, I, I really want to pursue down the road is uh, become a multi-domain operational controller, in part because we're seeing how the uh, air domain, and, and there's certain tidbits I'm picking up from my instructors, uh, it, it's shifting where there's so much more information and that's becoming a lot more of the information warfare and uh, where stealth is becoming a very significant component. You know, getting close and having the you know, original dogfights, uh, as glorious as those are, are becoming less likely. So I, I think if there's this a fundamental understanding of the integration from the uh, what, whatever airframe that you're piloting to the assets up in space, as well as the assets on the ground, we have something where it's F-35 that, you know, integrates fantastically with a battleship, as well as one of the uh, satellites above. That's, that's the future I'm looking forward to. Yeah, that's good, Eric. I'm glad you're thinking that way. Uh, um, so based on your, uh, uh, what you've learned, um, beyond what you aspire to, to be uh, at least mentally engaged with this, uh, I think the new term is joint all domain, uh, command and control and operations, um, mentally engaged with that. But what do you, what do you see that you took from your experience, uh, both with this cadet club and at the academy that you think has prepared you to enter uh, as a young officer to start wrestling with those problems right away? At a minimum, it's the, the engagement and uh, exposure. There, when, when Conan and I were in DC and then also dealing with some of the issues in this club, at a minimum, uh, talking about some of these issues brings up the, uh, some of the deeper rooted issues of, we don't have answers for this and we can't find them anywhere. And I, I think, you know, perhaps part of my personality, I, I have a difficulty letting things go. So uh, having a combination of the exposure and then in addition to some of the concern that uh, one of the things that we're looking at, of course, is China and in addition to some of the other actions that Russia is doing. So universally, it's this 
exposure and this uh, identifying of deeply rooted issues, in addition to some of the, the policy component and the fact that there's, it, this seems like there's a lack of strategy uh, that's tying everything together. That's, that's really gonna, I, I you know, expect it to, and I hope it continues to drive me forward as I learn how to fly a plane. But uh, that's all I got. Good, yeah, it's good that uh, you all are recognizing the challenges that you're walking into. Um, and the fact that you have even information on that now as cadets is fantastic. That uh, helps you prepare for, uh, for your early service. And uh, then as you continue to serve, you'll, your mindset will grow in that. So um, going back to the, the Space Force, I, I am curious, uh, kind of shift gears a little bit. Uh, what is, and again, and we have editing capability, but uh, um, have you all talked about yet what the cadet wing at the Air Force Academy thinks about the Space Force? So we have not uh, addressed that specifically yet. And uh, I'd like to preface, we do not speak for all cadets, the Air Force or the Air Force Academy. Um, <laughs> but uh, just so personally. Exactly. Just my personal opinion here. Um, cadets are largely looking, uh, looking in, in anticipation of what the Space Force will actually be doing. Uh, as, as it's being defined, um, a lot of that information is slow to trickle down to the Air Force Academy. So many of the previously spaceman cadets are folks doing their cadet satellite operations here, um, folks within strategic studies, astronautical engineering department. A lot, of, a lot of those cadets are extremely excited about the possibilities because they have a little bit more insight than some of the other cadets here. Um, I mean, clearly there's a lot of, you know, the, the, the talk about uniforms and what will be called, and that's, you know, a good lunchroom talk. Um, but overall, I think largely we're looking forward with anticipation to see what's going to uh, really going to occur and what the Space Force will be specifically doing um, that we'll be able to be, get involved with, at least within our club. Um, it, it, it's, it's a slightly different um, touch because we actually have at least some marginal ability to impact it now. Uh, we have teams looking at, you know, how is the Space Force going to look specifically like at the Academy? Uh, we're working with education training, bringing more of the space uh, visualization, um, as well as just education opportunities back to USAFA, exposure, uh, visualization, a lot of those big kind of buzzwordy items that space has really been lacking. Um, or really just hasn't seen as much presence here at the Academy. And so there's a lot of movement, a lot of crisscrossing um, of different organizations and different uh, cadets, crew paths. But overall, I think, frankly, just the cadets are excited to see what's going to happen um, and are really just a little bit left out um, in terms of their involvement, which is what we're here to do. Very good. Hey. So uh, with that in mind, uh, I know you all expended a great deal of effort to create this club and uh, spent a lot of time not just connecting with organizations inside and outside of USAFA, but simply motivating other cadets to start thinking about uh, space issues. Uh, what is your feeling about the prospects uh, for the future of this club as, uh, as you two, the initiators, uh, move on? Absolutely. Uh, so this is Cohen here again. Um, it, it's still a grassroots organization started within a military facility. Uh, so there are extreme inherent difficulties. Uh, largely, uh, a lot of upperclassmen have already kind of chosen their passions, and it's hard to convince them uh, once they've already invested significant time and energy that space should also be one of their passions if it wasn't already. And so there's a, we have a large investment in our current freshman, our four degree class, and we have a lot of really smart individuals within that. Needless to say, we also have a lot of upperclassmen that are helping us now and will be taking over uh, the reins going into next year. Uh, we have some astounding um, cadets focused on poli sci, focused on astro engineering, focusing on strategic studies, uh, different from Eric and I, who are both engineering majors. So it might take a little bit of a different flavor, but we're building the base now um, and we're giving them the exposure and the education um, and really just the resources that they're going to need to be able to start thinking about these problems on deeper and deeper levels. As Eric said, 
Um, the deeper you dig into a problem related to space, the more you realize that there's not really many answers to it. And so that's really inspiring um, as a cadet because we feel like we can actually answer or at least assist um, and give our inputs into some of these answers. And so the prospects are, are large uh, right now. And like I said, it's not as large as we'd like it to be currently, but that's expected. I mean, not everything can be uh, worth, um, and not everything can be uh, as big as you'd like it to be initially. Um, but things are rolling really well. And we have a lot of opportunities to talk to some higher level officials um, and really spread the word about what we're doing and uh, get things moving on that. I'm talking about like the interest level. This is the first email that Cone and I ever sent out. We had about 70 people that showed up. I just in part because they were curious of what this club looks like. And you know, they the, the interest for space is out there. And I, I think uh, when we we're in DC, we we're talking to uh, a uh, SES is uh, one of his assistants, and he talked about as a, I believe it was an 04 grad, uh, that there was a space club, another space club that was here at USAF, a little differently oriented, but there's always these kind of these ebbs and flows. And where I see this continued interest, engagement, and growth of uh, membership and interest is when we pull in a lot of these uh, folks from the industry, uh, additional um, you know, military leaders, and in addition to the, the networking component. So my intent and where I see the future is that it will be successful as long as we can pull in as much interest from uh, the outside community, community outside of USAFA, because that's really what gets kid, uh, cadets excited. When uh, the Red Space, Red Space CEO comes in, I mean, he has a ton of energy and that talk about uh, some of the uh, things that he does and building up scenarios is extremely fascinating just to even consider. We bring in some of the folks that are working on the alternate uh, reality go uh, goggles and those capabilities, seeing that as well as it's having this uh, physical touch to it that I think will help maintain its future and keeping it out of just solely academia and just a cadet thing. Exactly. And I think that's really what's going to define the future. And uh, the, the goal that I've told to, to all the four degrees and uh, the new leadership is make this last at least 10 years. And I think that will really ensure uh, it's almost uh, you know forever existence. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I uh, kind of talk on that brain folks and uh, we are honored to have the founder of the Space Force Associ Association come in tomorrow to speak to us. Um, and so we'll be talking to a lot of the 13S selects, our space operator selects going to the Space Force, and a lot of the folks from our club as well. So we're very excited and honored to have him there. Excellent. Hey, Cohen, you're too kind. I mean, honestly, those words, uh, they mean a lot. And it's funny because when we talk about the last stand-up of a service back in 1947, September, the Air Force Association, which was a huge component to that stand-up, stood up a year and a half earlier in, uh, in January of 1946. And so as far as I'm concerned, as standing up the Space Force Association, really what we're trying to do is pave the way for you know, new talent to come in and, and describe what it is that we need to do. And I think we've got the ability to do that, especially in this information age, which is awesome that we can have podcasts like this where we can talk to young minds and, and get your perspectives so that we can, we can do that mission and pave that way while also looking at the experience that we've got going through the community and say, hey, what do we need to do today? So it, it, this is awesome. What, what, a, what a great opportunity we have in this information age to get that, get that narrative out so that people understand what we're trying to do uh, for the Space Force as a new service and then perpetuate the space superiority mission. So I'll just pause there and, and I'll turn it back over to Ludes and, and see if you've got some additional uh, questions for the, for the kids. No, I am... Uh, I think I've always told you this since you all started, uh, uh, maybe not in these exact words, but I'm very inspired by the fact that you all put so much passion into this. And I think what you'll see is that 
enthusiasm is rewarded. And uh, you see that in the fact that uh, people are willing to, you know, professionals with very uh, busy uh, schedules are willing to commit their time to come and talk to your club. Uh, and it, it is because uh, you and your members have sh displayed that enthusiasm and that passion for the space issues. Because if you didn't, it, you know, the, these people wouldn't be showing up at, at the academy to uh, uh, participate and contribute to what you're trying to do up there. So uh, uh, I genuinely appreciate what you all are doing. Um, it, it is, uh, uh, it's exactly the kind of thing that uh, we, you always hope that uh, young people do at the institutions like that uh, and continue to do as they uh, enter into their, their respective services. Absolutely. So we're honored with any uh, anyone that has any sort of position or knowledge or experience. Any opportunity that we've ever had to meet with them is is always a distinct honor. People talk about the prop and wing effect of cadets and our ability to effectively walk into any room and talk to anyone. Uh, I think that might be a little bit overstated, but it's it's been an absolute honor um, for every single bit of engagement that we've ever gone to have, and it's it's going leaps and bounds further than I think anyone, especially Eric and I could have ever imagined. Uh, just seeing the lights uh, turn on in the back of, you know, our freshmen's minds. And for us, that didn't happen until our sophomore, junior year. And so being able to see them talk about complex issues, um, such as, you know, space defensive commercial assets or you know, exploring the connection between space and nuclear deterrence. Those are things that we would have had no ability to talk about. Uh, three years ago, and so because of these people and these you know individuals' contributions to what we're trying to do here, uh, I think it's going leaps and bounds. You know, if you want to think of it as like compounding interest uh, for what you know these these uh, four degrees and lower classmen are really going to be able to contribute to the whole of the force. Very good. Well, I think it bodes well for the future of the space force. So uh, uh, so that's good. Uh, um, I think I am uh, uh, good on questions there, Hippie. So uh, what else do you want to talk about with these uh, fun young men? Hey, you bet. Uh, real quick, uh, I'm just curious about your perspective. I talk about this concept quite a bit, the flight lead wingman concept, meaning I think the space community has a huge opportunity to learn from the air culture uh, and even any other domain culture about what it means to be a flight lead and a wingman. Uh, I'm just curious <clears throat> what your perspectives were in the academy. Did you get taught about you know, what it means to be a wingman? We talk about that quite a bit in the military, but I'm just curious what your perspective is. And then from a space community perspective, how do we kind of inculcate a flight lead concept so that they understand that not everyone needs to be in charge all the time, but some people need to be in charge sometimes, and that we need a lot of support around all the time. So I'm just, I'll just pitch that over to, to you as you uh, graduate from the academy and get ready for your careers. What do you, what do you think about that concept? Eric Van Engel here. Uh, one thing that I will say that's, uh, I, I think, unique to the service academies is that we just get absolutely inundated and blasted with buzzwords. And I want to say that, like, wingman has lost its meaning. But one of the things that we emphasize here in addition to wingman is accountability. And a lot of these words are tossed around so frequently that, uh, unfortunately, they can, they can lose their meaning. Yeah. Uh, for a lot of the airfield exposure that I do have, uh, wingman to me means more so someone that you can absolutely fundamentally rely on while you're in the air or on the ground. And I think it, you know, it's still kept at a very broad level. And a lot of the mission elements that we have here uh, at USAFA, in my opinion, we, we could better integrate kind of what that looks like from that flight lead into wingman component. It tends to be a very rigid structure of officer and NCO and then organizing and coordinating with other mission elements. But I think some of that tends to get lost in translation with uh, how the Air Force Academy organizes itself, at least within the cadet wing. Uh, one of the things that I, I 
just like to bring up for the sake of bringing it up is uh, what the Navy culture would look like mm -hmm. and kind of how we can incorporate that component into the Space Force culture in addition to potentially pulling out some of the really beneficial components from having a flight lead and wingman and knowing that uh, not everyone needs to be in charge and not everyone needs to know everything. So I, I comment if you have any additional thoughts. Yeah, so I actually take a slightly different perspective on this. Uh, one of the few times Eric and I might actually uh, differ in opinion. Um, but I, while I haven't spent uh, much time at all down at the airfield, I've uh, busied myself kind of focusing on other aspects of um, the academy and even focusing a bit on some of the more joint service uh, options. I thought about cross-commissioning into the Marine Corps for a year. Uh, thankfully, you know, I've decided to stay um, within the, you know, Air and Space Services. Um, and I've also uh, done at least a good amount of time in terms of, you know, cadet um, time uh, with, with the Army. And so the wingman concept for me has kind of taken on a different nature where it's, uh, you know, not only, you know, you know, your buddy's ability to pick you up off the ground, you know, when you've fallen um, and you know, make sure that you're doing what needs to happen uh, to make sure the mission is done. Um, but it also kind of takes on a different aspect as well. Once you kind of think of you know, what our generation is able to do in terms of multitasking and just absorbing information. I think uh, a lot of what this is going to look like going into the future, similar to the multi-domain operator, is a lot of folks watching uh, or really, you know, watching the, the battlefield unfurl and being able to, as a team, right, with a specific leader that's capable of making these decisions, um, taking the information and execute. So uh, some of the time I you know, spent working, you know, uh, with, you know, Marine uh, basic ground um, maneuvers was you have the one person that is without a doubt in control and he's constantly checking on the welfare uh, and health of those around him. Um, and everyone communicates when any order is given um, or any you know, specific uh, important amount of information is given. Uh, it's immediately um, communicated throughout the rest of the group. Every single person is effectively trained to repeat it. Um, and so I think a lot of those different components have, are going to have a huge application within space where whether it's going to be the machine learning, uh, relaying possible courses of action based off the 60 day battle plans that the enemy has been doing or immediate um, maneuvers. Uh, that a human might pick up uh, quicker than machine learning, it's going to take a lot of that cross-information. Um, but it, most importantly, it's still going to be the military culture of one person uh, that will be ultimately responsible for making and then executing uh, that decision. I like it. I mean, that, that, that kind of sums it up is at certain times in one's career, you've got to support and at certain times, you've got to step up and take responsibility for the mission. And both mm -hmm. of those are extremely important characteristics. And you, you, you summarize it very well. So I appreciate you doing that. Uh, no, Dr. Martindale, Eric, Colin, I, I appreciate everyone taking time out of their busy schedules. I know they've got a lot going on, uh, especially as you get ready for graduation and get ready for a new <laughs> career. I just assume keep this association going so that we can keep these collaborative discussions uh, open and kind of in the forefront of your discussions going forward. And, and at any time, if you feel like, hey, I'm not sure what's going on, feel free to reach out to anyone in the Space Force Association to ask, hey, what's going on with, or maintain your membership so that you can reach back into a community that's thinking about this on a day-to-day -day basis. And, and honestly provide some insights into what you're doing so that we're, we don't lose focus so that we can continue on supporting what you all are doing in the military for the space purity mission and whatever the air spirity is doing in support of the space purity mission, which is extremely important. So thank you. Thank you all for your time and look forward to discussing what is happening in the future uh, in future podcasts. Thanks again. Thank you.
Thank you for listening in to this edition of a Space Pro Podcast, where we interviewed U.S. Air Force Academy Cadets Williams and Ben Hegewald, who started the Institute for Applied Space Policy and Strategy. The Space Pro Podcast covers topics from military, industry, civil, and education sectors. To gain a better understanding of what the U.S. Space Force is all about and why it is a critical component to our national security, please go to ussfa.org and sign up for updates on all topics related to our newest military service.